If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. It's October 20th. I'm Brian Dean Wright, former CIA operations officer, and this is The Wright Report. Hey, good day to you, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Wright Report, your daily news podcast. I've got three briefs for you this morning that are shaping America and the world. First up, Joe Biden addressed the nation last night about the wars in Israel and Ukraine. We'll talk about what most Americans likely thought about his calls to global action, especially foreign aid. Second, an update on our battle for the Pacific. We are off to the Marshall Islands, plus Fiji and New Zealand this morning, with mostly good news all around. Third, U.S. intelligence leaders gathered with our global intel partners yesterday to warn that China is using artificial intelligence to hack and spy to a degree that is unmatched by any other nation in the world. Later, I close out the podcast with a reflection, and it ties all three briefs together that I'm going to give you this morning, and it's a reflection about leadership and bravery. But first, let's get to our top story of the morning. Joe Biden spoke from the Oval Office last night, addressing the nation about the wars in Israel and Ukraine. He spoke in fairly lofty terms about America's role in the world, saying things like, quote, we are facing an inflection point in history, end quote, adding that he would take on both Hamas and, and most especially, Russian President Vladimir Putin. In fact, he spent the bulk of his remarks last night on Mr. Putin and the war in Ukraine, talking to us about the importance of supporting President Vladimir Zelensky and, of course, his cause. And that is probably because of this. ABC News is reporting that Mr. Biden plans on asking Congress for another $60 billion in aid for just Ukraine. There will also be another $10 billion for Israel and some smaller sums of money for Taiwan and perhaps the U.S. border. And that list of things that Mr. Biden wants us to focus on, ladies and gentlemen, actually takes us to something that was not discussed last night, and that is the things that you want. In other words, what are the priorities of the American people in how you all want your taxpayer dollars to be spent? And do your priorities match up with the priorities that were laid out last night by Mr. Biden? Because that, folks, is vitally important. The, the federal government is your government, or it should be. All right, It should be doing your bidding. Reflect the will of the people. So that will be our focus this morning, looking at the message that was delivered last night and compare it to what you all want. Then we will talk about the messenger of last night's message and whether or not you all believe that Mr. Biden can move the country forward with whatever priorities that everybody has. So let's explore all of that this morning, focusing first on the issues that you all care about the most. And the answer is actually pretty clear. First and foremost, it's the economy. According to a series of polls, but most especially a recent poll from Reuters News Service, it shows that 19% of Americans rate the economy as their greatest concern. Second was illegal migration, and third was crime. 
So that sentiment of priorities is also captured by a whole bunch of other polling uh, from outlets like Statista and the Pew Research Center, which recently found that international affairs and things like global terrorism, that international stuff falls virtually to the bottom of every list of concerns that are held by American voters. Now, that doesn't mean that Americans don't care about global issues. We all do but just not in the same way that apparently Mr. Biden does based on his speech last night. And here's what I mean. A recent poll from CBS YouGov shows that while most of us support providing humanitarian aid to Ukraine, for instance, most of us do not believe that we should supply them with any more weaponry. Now, digging into those numbers, most Republicans and independents say no more military aid or just send less. Democrats, however, say that the current amount of military aid is appropriate, but there's very little appetite for more. Indeed, a poll that came out in August from the Wall Street Journal also showed this very same message. Now, as for Israel, the jury is still out about how much military aid might be appropriate or for how long, as we would expect. The terror attacks were only well two weeks ago or less than. But there is or are a set of early polls that give us a little bit of idea of what we all might believe. While polling does show widespread sympathy for both Israeli and Palestinian civilians, there's a pretty stark political difference on both the amount of sympathy and whether or not we should send aid. First, let's talk about the sympathy. Based on a poll from CNN that came out last Sunday, Republicans express more significant sympathy for Israelis than Democrats do. The split is about 49% of Republicans who are especially sympathetic to 26% of Democrats saying the same. Interestingly, the gap there is driven largely by younger people in America and non-white voters. In fact, an NPR poll out one week ago showed that that indeed was true. And that takes us to the issue of aid beyond sympathy. Now, while the U.S. already gives Israel billions of dollars each year, there is a partisan division about whether or not we should provide more support, even if it's just in public statements. Republicans in this case are more likely to support Israel, while Democrats are less so. And if we again dig into the numbers, that lesser Democrat support is once again concentrated mostly in those younger voters, age 18 to 45, and again, in those non-white voters. And those, of course, are the key parts of the Democrat coalition. In other words, folks, if I can recap, The message that you all are sending to the White House this morning is that you have three big priorities. The first is the economy, second is immigration, and third is crime. In other words, domestic issues. And while you are sympathetic to other nations and their needs, you are growing pretty reluctant, if not outright opposed, to more foreign aid, especially military aid. So those are the facts that address the message that was relayed to us last night in Mr. Biden's address. And we're going to talk about what appears to be a a disconnect between you and Biden on America's priorities in in just a second. But first, I'd like us to talk about the messenger that spoke to you last night, Mr. Biden, because what you all think of him undoubtedly impacts what you think of his message. So let's talk about what America thinks of Joe Biden. And we start with the big picture. A record number of Americans disapprove of Mr. Biden's leadership. In fact, a CNBC poll released just on Wednesday showed that nearly 60 percent of you all disapprove of Mr. Biden and his leadership. Indeed, that led to a Democrat pollster named Jay Campbell to say that, well, Mr. Biden's numbers, especially with the younger folks, black folks and Latinos, 
Well, that is, quote, very troubling, end quote. Okay, well, why is that? Why is it that not just the younger folks are black or Latino, but why do so many Americans disapprove of Mr. Biden? Well, part of the answer is this disconnect of the priorities that I just mentioned. You all are concerned about the economy and the illegal migration and crime. And on all three of those issues, Biden's approval numbers are, well, in a free fall. Let me just tell you about some of those numbers. We start with the economy. Only 32% of American voters approve of Biden's handling of the economy. And by the way, that I think helps explain why the Republican Party scores higher on that issue by a 14-point advantage. And that is the biggest GOP lead over the Democrats and indeed over 30 years on this issue. Next, we talk about illegal migration. Biden's approval number sits at about 30 percent, with 54 percent of U.S. voters believing that illegal migrants, quote, make life harder for native born Americans, end quote. Finally, the same well, dismal numbers are holding true for Biden's handling of crime, which actually takes us to yet another reason for why you all might not approve of Mr. Biden and his messages or priorities. So let's talk about this. According to a poll from the Associated Press that was released this week, nearly 70% of Americans think that Joe Biden has engaged in criminality or unethical behavior, all of which is connected to his family's foreign business deals, which also might explain a CBS poll that shows that 57% of Americans think that Mr. Biden is going too easy on China, which of course is one of the many countries where he and his family have maintained relations that have resulted in some pretty lucrative contracts. And indeed, speaking of foreign relations, consider this. 50% of Americans think that Mr. Biden is making the U.S. weaker in the world. Again, that is according to CBS News. Meanwhile, only 31% approve of his foreign policy agenda. So those are the, the, the facts about the messenger this morning, the man who told you about his message of, of priorities last night. And if I can now recap this messenger data, what you all are saying on a strong bipartisan basis, frankly, strong majorities of the American people are saying that you all do not approve of our leader in the White House. And that is apparently, according to the polling, fundamentally because you don't trust his ability or judgment to lead this country. Indeed, you believe that he is engaged in illegal or unethical behavior to include with the Chinese. Right. So that is the man and then we covered the message, his priorities for Ukraine and Israel. And obviously that clear disconnect with you where you want domestic issues addressed. So what are we to make of all of this then? That disconnect and your dislike or distrust of the messenger. Well, let's dig into that this morning. Pivoting now from facts and data to my analysis and opinion. Earlier this week, I got a message from Katie in Wyoming about the U.S. economy. And she was commenting about my report about inflation numbers that I gave you back on October 13th. And she was expressing her frustration that wages have not kept up with expenses over the past couple of years. And if I could paraphrase Katie, she said, this moment feels like a recession. I don't know what the economists are saying it is, but it is to me. And everybody around me I know is struggling too. And Katie is right. Well, the polling suggests that anyway. And data too. And what it's saying is this, you all want your president, Katie wants her president, to focus on the economy, plus that collapsed southern border and also our, our rampant crime. In other words, domestic affairs. As ever, it doesn't mean that you all don't want your leadership to be mindful or attentive to global issues. You do. 
Mostly you want that to be expressed with humanitarian aid. But my goodness, what the polls show is that you all have had quite enough of the international focus and you'd like for us to please clean up America. And for what it's worth, I get it. Over the past few weeks, I have spoken about all of these issues domestically. We've talked about stubborn inflation rates to the crushing cost of illegal migrants to retail crime. Or how about that brief that I gave you on Wednesday with the FBI statistics that show a doubling of the attacks on police officers in this country just over the last year? That's pretty horrific stuff. Plus, we've also talked about that massive debt crisis that is hanging over our heads. As I shared with you back on October 10th, the nonpartisan Penn Wharton budget model says that our debt will break this country financially within the next 20 years if we don't start to fix our deficit and that national debt, which for what it's worth is about $100,000 per person in America right now. So the challenge for any president in the face of all that, those stark domestic realities, is how can you possibly convince the American people to engage in foreign adventures or foreign wars, even if there is some degree of merit to them. But even in the best of times, that would be a challenge. But the challenge is especially acute for Mr. Biden. Because as we've just discovered uh, and, and discussed this morning, you all are saying very loudly and very clearly that he is not the man for the job and he needs to go. Poll after poll, as we've discussed this morning, makes that very clear. But that still leaves us with a bunch of challenges, doesn't it? Both domestically and internationally. If he were gone, how would we govern the country? Well, let's, let's have a little thought experiment, shall we? Let's put you in the White House. What would you do if you were in the Oval Office? And what would your priorities be? Right? More aid to Ukraine? How about anything for Israel? Or mostly just for domestic issues? And as you answer those questions, how much should we give, by the way? Because if we go back to that Penn Wharton model, we've only got about 20 years or so before we are in big trouble. Well, my goodness, I just tossed out a whole bunch of questions, all big ones, tough ones. And reasonable people can disagree about how to answer these questions with great passion. But again, let's imagine that you are in the Oval Office and you got to make the hard calls. So here's the counsel that I would offer you. Three pieces of advice based on what I see as our greatest or most immediate threats and opportunities. First, I think it's pretty clear that we have to lock down the southern border. And that is because our failed border policies are having a cascading series of effects all throughout this country. From crushing our communities with drugs and fentanyl deaths, saddling our cities with profound economic burdens to take care of all the illegals, or that, that open door down south that allows in an untold number of foreigners who are unvetted and uninvited. And indeed, as we've talked about on this podcast, a record number of those are on our terror watch list. In other words, if we fix the border issue, it fixes or addresses a lot of other issues as well. So, of course, the big question is, how do you fix the border? Oh, my goodness, a lot of debate on that. But I think that the problem, ladies and gentlemen, is so bad and so profound that easy solutions are just so far gone that we're going to have to do something well, some may call it more extreme, but I think it's going to come down to effectiveness. I think that a president with a spine is going to have to do something bold. And here it is for those counties that sit along the Mexican border. The president should issue martial law again, just for those counties along the border. Now, while that may sound surprising to some, it's actually been done over 60 times in U.S. history. And if you want to explore that and why folks did it, 
There are links in the transcripts for when martial law was declared, by whom, and for what purpose. All in accordance with the Constitution, I should say. And I offer this for your consideration, again, not because it is the greatest of all solutions, but rather, it's just a blunt recognition that the border crisis is too far gone to offer us any easy solutions. Right? The threat, frankly, is too immediate for any half solutions. So take that for what it's worth. Next, the second piece of counsel that I would offer you if you were sitting in the Oval Office this morning trying to prioritize limited funds and a big set of problems, I would encourage you to focus on reestablishing law and order in this country. And here's the goal, the principles involved. First, we got to allow families and kids to flourish in a safe environment, which in many places just not happening. And second, by creating that same safe environment, well, you're going to do the same for private industry and manufacturers, so you can allow them to both flourish and rebuild operations that they have previously shipped off to places like Asia and Mexico. Now, this idea about reestablishing law and order, it is a big and complicated suggestion with all sorts of challenges and opportunities and tentacles to it that we will cover in future episodes. But again, here's the key principle uniting all of them. If you don't have law and order in a country or a community, then the people and the companies that live and operate in those places, well, they struggle to exist in what is an environment of chaos and fear. And obviously, that does not encourage healthy communities or families or businesses. But if you can fix that, then things start to change. Indeed, I've shared with you the example of El Salvador and how the president there has taken his country from one of the most deadly to one of the most flourishing in all of Central America. Although I should say, of course, Mr. Bukele, who is the president there and his country still have problems and warts. But my point is this. If you are sitting in the White House this morning with limited resources at your disposal and you're trying to deploy them in a very strategic way with the greatest return on investment, well, the best one is to reestablish law and order. Well, because that gives families and businesses the chance to flourish and ultimately fix themselves. Which takes us to my final and third piece of counsel. As you imagine you are sitting in the Oval Office in this thought experiment of ours, let's talk about foreign aid. So my advice on this one is pretty darn simple, right? The vast majority of whatever you might have, if you're sitting in the Oval Office this morning, it should be spent on trying to counter China. And that is because, as listeners know, China is America's gravest threat, hands down. Nothing and no one else even comes close. Indeed, the U.S. military, the law enforcement in this country, intelligence agencies have all confirmed that this is true repeatedly. Now, the good news on this challenge is that there are some very smart solutions to solving this problem, although, as ever, none of them are exactly easy. But the two that, well, are in our most immediate control that would solve most of the problem would be, first, revoking all U.S. visas that are held by Chinese citizens and sending them all back home. And second, forcing Chinese investors to divest their holdings, most especially those who have ever purchased any land in this country, and indeed, this idea is similar to what the governors of Arkansas and Florida have done recently. But China aside, there will be times, I think, when it's important to give foreign aid or to refocus our military spending. And when we do, I think that the guiding principle should be to give to those people or those countries that will either prevent a global fight, you know, an actual war with the Communist Party of China, or to shore up our defenses, well, if God forbid that fight ever goes hot, as it were. Now, 
I'm sure this morning many of us are thinking about that uh, war in Israel this morning. So, yes, there might be some very smart exceptions to this pro or only China rule. Israel indeed is an example of that likely. And that is where ultimately presidential discernment comes into play. But nevertheless, those are the three suggestions that I would offer you this morning if you were in the Oval Office. First and foremost, lock down the southern border. Second, reestablish law and order. And third, take on the Chinese. Now, here's the good part. You can take everything that I just said, all my counsel, and just toss it right out the window if you want. Because, ladies and gentlemen, reasonable people can disagree with some or all of what I just said. But in my view, what is clear this morning is that whatever the disagreements that we might have, poll after poll shows that Mr. Biden's message last night fell on deaf ears. You all have different priorities than he does. And you're just not interested in his message of foreign affairs. And bluntly, I don't think you all are especially interested in the messenger either. You don't particularly think that Mr. Biden is a great leader. In fact, based on polling, you all think that it is time for change. With that, let's take our first break of the morning. We'll be right back. Well, the world is just awful lately, isn't it? And sometimes it makes you just want to crawl into bed and scream into your mattress to make it all go away. Well, if you do, just make sure that your mattress is made by GhostBed. Seriously, folks, GhostBed makes the finest mattresses on the market today with craftsmanship and high-quality materials that you can feel as you fall asleep. And I would know. I have their Lux model, and I bought it because I sleep hot, and that thing helps keep me cool all night long for a great night's sleep. Now, people have asked, how does this technology work to cool you? I don't know. Magic? Maybe little elves in there somewhere with ice cubes? Probably. But it doesn't matter. Their mattresses, ladies and gentlemen, are top-notch. And if you don't believe me, that's okay. They have a 101-day trial period plus free shipping and returns, so you can try it out in the comfort of your own home. So, go to ghostbed.com backslash right. That's W-R-I-G-H-T. And you can explore all of their incredible models. And right now, they are giving my listeners 40% off their GhostBed purchases. But you got to use that code right. Again, go to ghostbed.com backslash right. W-R-I-G-H-T. And get yourself the good night's sleep that you deserve. Folks, if you're looking to diversify your investments, I have something for you to consider. It's called Masterworks. And here's what they do. They purchase modern art by famous creators like Picasso, and then they qualify it with the SEC and sell shares of that art to investors like us. Now, eventually, they sell that piece of art. It's called an exit. And then investors like you and me, we get a portion of the sale. And their record, it's pretty darn impressive. Last month, they had exits with returns of 10 to 35%. Now, this concept is relatively new, but not to the 780,000 members who have joined and invested. Meanwhile, Masterworks has also been written up in Forbes and Financial Times. And I'll tell you, read those articles because I did, and I decided that for my long-term investments, Masterworks fits. Now, will that be the case for you? Well, here's how you decide. Go to masterworks.art slash right report and you will get priority access for a personal interview with the staff and they will help you decide if masterworks fits for you so again go to masterworks.art slash right report that's w-r-i-g-h-t and as you sign up for that interview you can also read through their disclosures good stuff there at masterworks.art slash cd 
So all in all, folks, I think that you will be impressed with Masterworks and what they offer to investors. So again, go to masterworks.art slash write report, because at the end of the day, I think you will be glad you did. Welcome back to the Right Report. Let's continue with our briefs this morning with a pivot towards international news. Grab your maps because we are off to Oceania this morning, the North and South Pacific, of course, all as a part of our ongoing coverage of the battle for the Pacific. Yes, it's the fight between the U.S. and China for dominance and influence that we've been talking about for a while now. It's a series that we kicked off all the way back on May 23rd. Well, this morning, I've got mostly good news to cover with you, at least from the American perspective. Three pieces of good news, ladies and gentlemen, starting with the Marshall Islands, with a quick refresh first of our memories about that place. As listeners might recall, the Marshalls are a series of islands and atolls that sit about halfway between Hawaii and Australia, more or less, which means that this place is absolutely remote. Only 5,000 or so people from around the world ever show up to that place as visitors each year, which is a real shame. It's a beautiful place, although that wasn't necessarily always true, certainly not under the control of the Japanese back in the day. But once they were liberated after World War II, they became wards of the United Nations, and then they got their independence. But when they did back in the 1970s and 80s, they also got a new benefactor, the United States. Our government got them to sign something that is called a Compact of Free Association, or a COFA. So here's how these things work. The U.S. gives the Marshalls money each year, upwards of 35% or more of their national budget. Plus, we offer their citizens the ability to travel and work in the United States, even join our military. In return, the Marshall Islands give us basing rights for our military and virtually exclusive control over foreign policy. And that's pretty important in this battle for the Pacific. But we have a problem. The COFA that we had with the Marshall Islands, well, it had expired. And the Biden administration had been negotiating on the terms of a new agreement for a while. Unfortunately, that process, that negotiation, had been delayed. A lot of negotiating back and forth. But just a couple of days ago, we inked a new deal. And that is the good news. On Tuesday... The Marshall Islands and the U.S. government agreed to a new 20-year deal at a cost of, oh boy, $2.3 billion. And I say gulp in no small part because the Marshall Islands said that the $2.3 billion was four times higher than what Biden officials said that they would even remotely consider. So, a tough deal for U.S. taxpayers, but I guess in return we got some very important islands on our side for at least another 20 years, and they, of course, won't be joining China. So there's that. Next, for our second piece of news in this battle for the Pacific, we head to the country of Fiji this morning, which is more or less due south of the Marshalls. To quickly refresh our memories here, Fiji is a nation led by a prime minister with the nickname of Rambo, and Rambo has been on our side lately embracing America and our friends in Australia. Well, the good news is that that embrace is getting a little bit tighter. And that's because on Wednesday, Mr. Rambo, who is more properly known as Mr. Sedeveni Rabuka, he's signed a deal with Australia to expand their cooperation on cyber operations. And he did so because, as he said in the speech, things in the Pacific Ocean, or Oceania, are heating up, all, of course, between China and the West. And as this environment gets a little bit toasty, he wants to make sure that he is with a team 
that he trusts. Or as he said, quote, we're more comfortable dealing with traditional friends, that we have similar systems of government, that our democracies are the same brand of democracy, end quote. Although he's being a little cheeky there, obviously China is not a democracy. So that is good news number two. As our final piece of news, I'm not sure if this is good or bad. I'm going to let you decide. But it takes us to New Zealand this morning, a longtime ally that is going in a new direction. And here it is. After six years of Liberal Party rule, a conservative party has captured enough seats in their parliament to select the nation's new prime minister. A man named Christopher Luxon, he is a conservative. He is going to be New Zealand's new or next prime minister. That is after he won a very decisive victory last Saturday. And that's quite a change. A liberal government has been in power in New Zealand for at least the last six years, most of which was under the leadership of a gal named Jacinda Ardern. And you might know that name or perhaps recognize her face because she was one of the world's biggest proponents of COVID lockdowns. Plus, she was pretty squirrely with who got to control information in her country about all kinds of things, but definitely COVID. The most infamous quote about that issue, about controlling information, is this, again from Miss Ardern, quote, unless you hear it from my government, it is not the truth, end quote. Well, whatever you think of that or her, she and her party are no longer in power, nor is the man who actually took over for her a couple months ago when she stepped away. His name is Chris Hipkins, and he took a lot of heat because he is arguably the chief architect for Ms. Ardern's COVID policies. Indeed, this helped lead to his political undoing. As media outlets like Politico and others are reporting this morning, New Zealand voters just grew tired of all these liberal COVID policies, plus some pretty tough inflation numbers down there in New Zealand, a lot of crime, and listen to this, they got fed up with taxes on their cows and sheep. Yes. This last one is, is pretty important for New Zealand. Yes, all of their farmers and ranchers. And that's because the liberal government had a plan to tax the burps and the flatulence of cows and sheep in that country, all to help stop climate change. So in other words, voters in New Zealand had just seen enough of all that liberal stuff, and they voted in this new conservative fellow. One final thing to tell you about him, though. He's promising to deepen his country's ties to China. So back on October 14th, he told an interviewer with the Washington Post about his plans with Beijing. He said that, quote, we raise our concerns with China when we need to in private, but we also have commercial relations with China and we'll continue to develop those as well, end quote. Well, if you're wondering what exactly that will look like developing those relations with China, that is unclear as of this morning, but we should consider this. China is New Zealand's largest trade partner. You're not alone in that, by the way. Australia is in the same position. So in this battle for the Pacific this morning, ladies and gentlemen, we've got mostly good news with that little bit of asterisk of what's going on in New Zealand and their big trade partner with China. And I want us to keep this information in mind, ladies and gentlemen, as I share this next final piece of news of the morning. The intelligence chiefs of the United States, Britain, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand released a very rare joint statement on Tuesday that, well, rang the alarm on Chinese espionage globally. So this group, which is known as the Five Eyes Group in the intel world, 
They were meeting with industry leaders in Silicon Valley this week when they confirmed in a statement what, well, you all probably already know, that China is engaging in the mass theft of intellectual property. But here's something new. China is now using artificial intelligence, or AI, to help bolster their hacking and spying operations. Exactly how they are using AI, we're not exactly sure this morning. I'm going to be digging into that in the future. But in the meantime, the Five Eyes are warning that things with China, your use of AI, it is bad and getting worse. As the Australians put it, quote, This sort of spying is happening every day in Australia, as it is in the rest of the countries represented here, end quote. Later, and to that point, U.S. Intel representatives confirmed that China is stealing more personal and corporate data than any other nation in the world by orders of magnitude. Now, what is curious about this and this release of a statement by Five Eyes, this alarm? Well, it's that one day earlier, the U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen was on an interview with Australian TV, and she declared that the U.S. has no intention of ever separating itself from China. In fact, she promised the opposite. Quote, we are not attempting to decouple from China. We have a deep uh, economic relationship, and we are deepening that relationship. End quote. So there you have it, folks. The latest facts and data from our allies throughout the North and South Pacific, from the Marshall Islands to Fiji, to our friends in Australia and New Zealand. So rather than offer you my analysis or opinion, I'd like to offer you a reflection this morning, a reflection as we part ways for the weekend about leadership and bravery. So in this battle for the Pacific, which is really a battle for the world, what I am struck with when I bring you this news is that again and again, It is the tiniest nations that are the ones with the biggest spines. And I think that is because they are operating on principle. For instance, I just mentioned how Fiji's prime minister, Mr. Rambo, said that he wants to stick with his Western friends like the U.S. and Australia because we are democracies. And that's important to him. Freedom is important to him. Or maybe you recall my briefs that I've given you about the presidents of the South American country of Paraguay. They represent the last nation in South America that still supports Taiwan. And they do so with absolute fortitude, with principle. So consider this statement by the last president of Paraguay. Quote, I want to express my deepest and most sincere respect to the Taiwanese people for not giving up their brave struggle for freedom and the safeguarding of their sovereignty. In the face of continued threats and a tense situation, Taiwan's people have not given up their resolution for peace. They continue to play the role of a lighthouse of democracy in the region. End quote. And that president was recently replaced by a new fellow. And he has made similar remarks and commitments to Taiwan, saying that Paraguay, quote, shares with Taiwan the same vision to create a peaceful, democratic and sustainable world. End quote. Adding that, quote, we are not just allies, but also brothers, end quote. Now, to be clear and to be fair, I am sure that there are some backroom deals at some level in Fiji or Paraguay that's maybe encouraging these leaders to offer up that lofty support. And yet, based on my experience, I can tell you, China is a 1,000-pound gorilla. They've got loads of money and loads of pressure. And uh, most of the time, these little countries just buckle. But Paraguay, Fiji, and others, they're not. 
And that is why when I think about these little places, it is so disheartening to see so many Western politicians that are just unable to do the same. And that is, of course, despite the fact that we just heard from the five eyes saying that we are being crushed by Chinese espionage at a level that is unmatched in recent history. And that, I think, gets back to the top of today's Right Report episode. At the heart of why most of you all and most Americans do not approve of Mr. Biden is that he lacks good leadership. And that matters a lot. Because if you doubt your leadership, if they lack bravery, and instead they have uh, succumbed to the temptations of corruption or illegality or unethical behavior, then no matter what they say, no matter the merit of their priorities, which we heard last night, people just don't listen. They want change. So I tip my hat to Fiji and Paraguay this morning because I think that they are reminding us that men and women of giant character can come from the tiniest of places. Yes, I think that these men and women are reminding us of how to lead. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we conclude your morning brief. As always, I will see you on Monday, God willing. Until then, I leave you with the creed of every good spy and every wise American. They're the words from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 32. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Good day.